Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Rizzi about his book, Jesuit Colleges and Universities in the United States, A History, published by Catholic University of America Press this past October. Jesuit College and Universities in the United States provides a comprehensive history of Jesuit higher education in the U.S., weaving together stories of 54 colleges and universities that the Jesuits have operated successfully and unsuccessfully since 1789. Rizzi explores how the colleges respond to common challenges, including anti-Catholic prejudice in the United States, the push from government authorities to modernize their shared curriculum, and the pull of Roman authorities to remain loyal to Catholic tradition. As I stated, this is a comprehensive history covering the colonial era to the present and takes a fresh look at themes like the rise of the research university in the 1800s and the administrative reforms of the 1960s. It also provides a modern and timely perspective on the role of Jesuit colleges in racial justice, women's education, and other civil rights issues, drawing attention to underappreciated Jesuit contributions in these areas. It draws from published and archival sources on the history of each of these institutions to construct a singular narrative, identifies common themes, challenges, and trends. Through the eyes of Jesuit colleges, it traces the evolution of American higher education and the role of Catholics in the United States over more than two centuries. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, Really great to be here. Yeah. So before we jump in, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So uh, as for my own background, uh, I have my undergrad degree from Georgetown, which is where my interest in Jesuit higher ed started. Uh, I had some really great Jesuit professors and mentors there. Um, I also have a master's in political science and a doctor of education, focusing on higher ed management, uh, both from the University of Pittsburgh. And as I say in the book, that gives me a bias toward the administrative side of university life. I'm very interested in college presidents and staff and how they live out their university mission. And I'm sure that comes through in the book. 
Yeah, and speaking of the book, you know, this is such a comprehensive history. How did you get interested in this topic? Why did you want to write this book? Well, this this book was just a labor of love, and I just truly enjoyed every minute of researching it and writing it. Um, as you said, it is a combined history of all the colleges and universities Jesuits have operated uh, in the U.S. since 1789. So it traces the history of the American education system through the eyes of Georgetown and Boston College, Fordham, Gonzaga, Marquette, all, all the others. Um, and I have to say that I was really surprised that this book didn't already exist. Uh, when I was working on my dissertation in the doctoral program at Pitt, I was writing about Catholic higher ed, and I collected a lot of books about the history of individual Jesuit colleges, but I couldn't find one that told the story collectively. And that just seemed like a huge omission to me. You know, Jesuits were some of the most important educators in the history of our country, Catholic or non-Catholic, and they founded some of our most famous universities. They were pioneers in educating first-generation immigrants. A Jesuit school, St. Louis University, actually granted the first bachelor's and master's degrees west of the Mississippi. Uh, It was a Jesuit school, Santa Clara, that granted the first bachelor's degree on the West Coast. So their contribution to American higher ed was enormous. Uh, And currently, there are 27 Jesuit colleges. They enroll about 200,000 students, and they employ about 30,000 people. And that's not even counting their associated hospitals and parishes and high schools. So the more I read about them, the more convinced I was that this story just really needed to be told. Yeah, and I really wanted to talk about the research method you used, right? You're using both published and archival sources to recount this history. So what difficulties did you face when doing this research? What methods were you using when you were writing this? Sure. Well, as I said, I was at first very surprised that this book didn't already exist. But uh, as I started to dig deeper into the research, I actually realized why nobody had ever written this book. Uh, There was just an overwhelming amount of information to try to make sense of. Um, The Jesuits started schools in every part of the country, uh, in every imaginable circumstance, you know, from the colonial era to the Civil War, westward expansion, the Industrial Age, the baby boom, beyond. Uh, It was challenging, but it it was also fascinating to try to trace how so many schools evolved through all of these time periods. And it was a little overwhelming sometimes to think about the literally hundreds of colleges and parishes and high schools and and dioceses that that would have to play some part in this this big national story. I actually learned in the course of doing the research um, that there was one professor at Santa Clara University, a Jesuit historian by the name of uh, Father Gerald McKevitt, really great historian, who had tried to write a comprehensive history of Jesuit colleges. He had tried to do this back in the 1990s. And this is true. He died before he could finish it. (laughs) So that was a little little overwhelming to to learn that. Uh, But finally, I I just said, look, somebody has to do this. This book needs to exist. So I spent a lot of my own money just collecting every book I could find about the individual college histories. I I worked with some archivists at the Jesuit Archives and Research Center in St. Louis. I worked with librarians and archivists at all the different Jesuit schools just to you know, confirm details like when was the school chartered and when did it officially open and 
And I will say that all of those people were very, very supportive. Uh, they gave me access to some great source materials. Um, I knew it was an ambitious topic. So you know, one day I just said, you know, just start writing, see where it takes you. And you know, I would tinker with the manuscript, you know, whenever I had a chance. And it's amazing how quickly the page count just adds up. And, uh, you know, after within a few years, I had my first draft. I submitted it to Catholic University of America Press, which was always my first choice. And, and I'm told uh, uh, that the editorial board and the reviewers uh, unanimously voted to publish it in, in 2021. So after a year of editing and, and fact checking and spell checking and revision, uh, now it's out. And, and I, I should say I'm very grateful to CUA Press for believing in this project. They've been really great to work with. What I found really interesting is you have a terminology section in early on in the book. I don't often see a terminology section in, in history books. Um, so can you tell our listeners some of the most essential terminologies to understanding your book that are in that section? Sure, sure. So, well, the reason why I included that is, is I wanted this book to be accessible to everybody, right? Catholics and non-Catholics. So, you know, alumni who might be really interested in the history of their own school, as well as maybe, you know, staff who are just kind of casually curious about it. And so I, it didn't assume that the reader has any prior knowledge of the Jesuits, but to understand how Jesuit schools operated, you really need to understand how the Jesuits organized themselves. So at the very top of the Jesuit order in Rome, there's the superior general, and he's elected by his peers to lead the whole order worldwide. And through the middle of the 1900s, it's actually amazing how much authority the superior general actually had over the minutiae of the American colleges. Jesuits had to check with him before building a new building or starting a new program, or even before they spend a few thousand dollars on anything. Uh, it reminded me in some ways of a public university today. Now, you can't build a, a new building without authorization from the state. Um, but you know, just imagine in the 19th century, Jesuit schools had to get approval from somebody who lived on another continent, and they had to rely on the speed of horses and transatlantic ships to communicate. Um, now, under the underneath the superior general, the Jesuits organized themselves into provinces, and each province covers a specific territory, and it's led by a provincial. And over history, the U.S. has been carved up into many, many different Jesuit provinces. And from that point of view, it's really important to understand that the growth of Jesuit colleges in this country was not monolithic. Uh, yes, it was all controlled from Rome, ultimately. But there were multiple provinces and multiple groups of Jesuits who came to the United States at different times and built colleges. A very famous historian, Philip Gleason, uh, once observed that Jesuit colleges were founded on a hub and spoke model. Uh, so basically, each province had one main university. And whenever that university got big enough and strong enough, it would just branch out and it would lend some of its Jesuit faculty to start a new school. So there's a very clear family tree of Jesuit colleges where one school kind of gave birth to another one. Um, now on the East Coast, you had the Maryland province and those Jesuits were mainly English and they came to Maryland back all the way back in the 1600s in the colonial days. And their major school was Georgetown. And over time, Georgetown gave birth to Holy Cross and Boston College and St. Joe's in Philadelphia and Loyola in Baltimore. Um, then in the Midwest, you had the Missouri province, and those Jesuits were mainly Belgian immigrants, and they made their headquarters at St. Louis University. Uh, 
And from St. Louis, then they radiated out and they founded Loyola Chicago and Marquette and Xavier and Creighton and Rockhurst and University of Detroit. Um, then in the far west, you had the California province, and those Jesuits were mainly Italian. And their oldest college, their base, uh, was Santa Clara University in Northern California, uh, which then branched out to create the University of San Francisco and Loyola Marymount and Gonzaga. Um, you had the French Jesuits. Uh, French Jesuits were mainly in the south, uh, mainly in New Orleans, and, and they started most of the southern schools, most of which have closed over the years. But the French Jesuits also worked at Fordham in New York City. Um, and finally, you had the German Jesuits who settled in Buffalo and they founded Canisius College. And then they branched out to start John Carroll University and, and a few others. So lots of different ethnic groups uh, arriving at different times. The pattern is that they start one school and then they use that school as a base of operations to start others. That was just really fascinating, seeing the growth and almost branching out of how these universities form. So I'd like to talk about the definition of college regarding Jesuit higher education. Um, as you explain in the book, you know, definitions change over time and the definitions of how we view colleges and universities change. So what definition of college did the Jesuits use? What definition of college did you come up with? Well, this was honestly one of the biggest challenges, right? So, you know, you're writing a story about Jesuit colleges. Well, what actually constitutes a college, right? You know, as you say, our, our definition in the United States of what qualifies as, you know, quote unquote, higher education really has changed over the centuries. And it's not just a Jesuit schools, by the way. If you went back in time and you would visit Harvard or Yale, in the early 1800s, you'd see students who were 14 years old, 13 years old. It would look a lot more like what we would call a high school. Um, now, the Jesuits were especially hard to classify because the traditional Jesuit curriculum was six years long. So they tended to admit students around the age of 15 or 16. And those students would then graduate with a bachelor's around the age of 22 or so. So it was kind of like a combined high school and college. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why a lot of Jesuit schools, even today, uh, have a high school associated with the college. So Georgetown Prep School, uh, Boston College High School. Uh, what happened was in the early 1900s, when you had this American model of a four-year high school followed by a four-year college, and that kind of became standardized, the Jesuits would just spin off their lower grade levels into independent high schools, and they usually kept the same name. Um, so I really had to decide what to do with these schools that, that opened and closed in the 1800s because they called themselves colleges, but they really only enrolled very young students. And sometimes maybe they even closed before they even granted a bachelor's degree. Um, so the, the definition I used was this. Number one, the school had to be a school for lay people, not a seminary. Jesuits operated many seminaries to train other Jesuit priests, you know, the Woodstock College in Maryland, West Baden College in Indiana, Columbier College in Michigan. Those were all seminaries, so I did not include them. Uh, for the schools for lay people, if the school was legally chartered as a college, meaning that, you know, the state government legally empowered it to grant bachelor's degrees, I included it. And that seems pretty straightforward, but there were some schools like Regis College in Illinois and St. Aloysius College in Kentucky. 
those schools only existed for about three years. So they never actually graduated anybody, but they were legally colleges on paper. So they're in. Um, then there were some schools that weren't legally chartered as colleges, but maybe that wasn't the Jesuits' fault. Uh, a really great example of that is St. Joseph's College uh, in Oregon. That school only existed for about five years in the 1840s. It was never chartered as a college, but for most of the time it existed, there was actually no organized government in the Oregon Territory to charter it. So the, the Jesuits were actually in Oregon before the government was. Uh, so I include that one on the grounds that it, it most likely would have been chartered if the circumstances had allowed it. And, you know, there were some other ambiguous ones too, like you know, St. John Birchman's College, uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, that was never independently chartered, but it did briefly enroll college students under the charter of other Jesuit colleges in Louisiana. So it thought of itself as kind of a, a branch campus of St. Charles College. Um, you know, obviously a lot of Jesuit college students are basketball fans. So as I was doing this, I kept thinking of it kind of as like the NCAA tournament in March, where they always talk about the last ones in, first ones out. Um, you know, St. John Birchman's College was probably one of the last ones in, uh, first ones out. You know, there were just some schools I did not think qualified as a college by any definition. There were some really bare bones schools. Um, the Conewago Latin School in Pennsylvania, you know, that was a school that the Jesuits ran near Gettysburg on and off in, in kind of short spurts in the 1800s. At one point, it only had one teacher, never had more than five professors. It was never accredited. Uh, I just said, look, there's no way we could call that one a college, even by the definition of the 1800s. So, in the end, yeah, it, it does become a matter of definition, but I counted 54 Jesuit schools that meet a reasonable definition of a college. Uh, 27 of them still operate as a Jesuit college today. Some of them still exist, but today they're Jesuit high schools. Uh, for example, Brophy Prep School in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a high school today, but in the 1930s, it actually enrolled college students too. Um, Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C. is another great example. Technically, that high school still has the legal right to grant degrees, and they do. They give honorary degrees to commencement speakers and guests, even though you know, it only gives high school diplomas to its own students. Yeah, that was really fascinating because, I mean, I love definitions, especially seeing them change over time. I find that really is interesting. But so... Often in broad histories, minority groups like women and people of color get left out of that history. And so I was really happy to see the inclusion of them in your book um, due to how extensive your book is. Um, so what was the role of women and people of color uh, in the formation of Jesuit higher education? Well, this, this was very important to me. Uh, in each major time period in the book, I, I tried to include a segment on the role of women at the time and also about the state of race relations at the time. Uh, because as you say, that part of the story has been omitted from a lot of the previous histories. Now, you, you can never tell a complete story in any book, but if you're trying to tell as complete a story as possible, then you know this, this has to be included. Uh, so women have actually played very important roles uh, in the history of Jesuit education. For one thing, 
there were a lot of really important female donors. Um, and the list starts with the Creighton family in Nebraska. So you had two women, Mary Lucretia Creighton and Sarah Emily Creighton. And they were the driving forces along with John Creighton of the big donations that made it possible for the Jesuits to open the school in Omaha that's named after them. Um, and then there were others like Ida Ryan at Georgetown, Susanna Hinkle at Xavier, Ellen Brophy at the you know, former Brophy College in Phoenix. It's also true that in many places, the Jesuits built a college in a city where a Catholic women's religious order had already built a school. And that's what attracted the Jesuits to the area. Uh, so this was true in Seattle. Uh, it was true in Grand Coteau, Louisiana. So you know, the Jesuits were certainly pioneers. But in more than one case, there were actually Catholic sisters and nuns in those communities even before the Jesuits got there. Uh, another thing that really struck me as I was doing the research is just how deep the history of women's students actually runs. Uh, so a lot of colleges, a lot of Jesuit colleges will tell you that they went fully co-ed in the 60s or the 70s. And, and while that's true, uh, the key word there is that that's the date they went fully co-ed. Uh, so in most cases, women were actually enrolling at the schools long before then uh, in specific programs. So women were enrolled in the medical schools at Georgetown and Creighton all the way back in the 1880s and the 1890s. Uh, Georgetown and Marquette both had nursing schools in the early 1900s. Marquette usually gets credit for being the first Catholic men's college to admit women as undergrads in 1909. But even before that, uh, there were five women who enrolled at St. Louis University Law School in 1908. And, and there were definitely some Jesuits who were very committed to women's education, even though uh, the circumstances of the time didn't permit them to be, I, I guess you could say, open about it. Um, so by, by the 1920s, a lot of schools were enrolling women. They were just doing it on an ad hoc basis. Uh, for example, St. Louis University, all the women were technically enrolled in the School of Education, whereas the men were enrolled in the School of Arts and Sciences. But they took classes together. They saw each other on campus. They were in clubs together. Uh, this became really important in the Great Depression and World War II when there just weren't many men available to enroll. Um, at Seattle University in the 1930s, all the women were technically enrolled in the evening college. But there's a historian, Walt Crawley, who's pointed out that at Seattle University, the quote unquote evening division actually started at noon. Uh, so there, there were hardly any restrictions on what the women could take. And my favorite story of all is that in the 1930s, Loyola University in New Orleans had a sorority. It had a homecoming queen. It had women on its student council. And yet it was not officially co-ed because women couldn't enroll in the arts and sciences school. Uh, now, to, to the second part of your question, uh, you know, we, we have to begin by acknowledging that the Jesuits were, were slave owners. Uh, there was slave labor on Jesuit plantations and, and other properties in Louisiana, uh, Maryland, Alabama, Missouri, Kentucky. Um, there are some great scholars like Kelly Schmidt and, and others who are digging deep into this story right now and doing some really great work on it. Uh, in the last 10 years, uh, we've become more aware that in 1838, the Maryland Jesuits sold approximately 300 people. And the revenue from that sale was collected in installments over the next 20 years or so. And it supported many different Jesuit ministries, including colleges, including parishes, high schools, seminarians, missions. Um, 
Now, the colleges themselves were segregated in the 1800s, especially the ones that were in the South. Uh, but you start to see them break the color barrier in the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. It was really fascinating to you know, just read the stories of these African-American students who enrolled early. Uh, William Gordon graduated from Creighton Medical School in 1901. Mabel Ramey uh, enrolled at Marquette Law School in 1922. Hudson Oliver uh, went to St. Peter's College in 1934. Casper Ferguson went to Boston College in 1933. Uh, there was a really important milestone in 1944 during the war. Uh, a Jesuit by the name of Claude Heidhouse delivered a very fiery anti-racist sermon at a mass in the college church at St. Louis University. And in his homily that day, he said, you know, this university admits students of every religion. Why would we turn our backs on our fellow Catholics just because they happen to be brown or black? Um, so that homily sent shockwaves through the whole community. And, and a year later, St. Louis actually became the first university of any kind in a state where slave owning had been legal to desegregate. Uh, later on, 1954, Spring Hill College in Mobile became the first college in Alabama to desegregate. Uh, Martin Luther King, in his very famous letter from a Birmingham jail, actually mentioned Spring Hill College by name. Uh, and in 1963, Loyola Chicago became the first college to win a national basketball championship with a predominantly black starting lineup. Now, on the other hand, you have schools like Loyola of New Orleans that were you know, comparatively very resistant to integration, and they didn't fully integrate until you know, quite late in the 1960s. Um, now, another thing you have to acknowledge is that the Jesuits had a, um, they had a very close relationship to Native Americans. Uh, for better and for worse, the Jesuits operated many schools for Native American children all throughout the West. Uh, some of those developed into colleges, like St. Mary's College in Kansas. Um, many Jesuits learned the indigenous language very well. They preached in it on Sundays. That Many of them were very well respected by tribal leaders, but there was still prejudice from time to time. There were some colleges where white students and Native American students were educated together, and there were others like Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington, where indigenous people were actually excluded at first. Um, you also have to acknowledge that, that Jesuit schools in the 1800s actually enrolled a very notable number of students from Latin America, uh, especially from Mexico and Cuba. Now, of, of course, only the, you know, the relatively wealthy students who could afford to come to the United States, but uh, it was not common at the time for mainstream American colleges to enroll such a large number of Mexican Catholic students. Uh, and there were some Jesuit schools like Las Vegas College in the New Mexico Territory where, you know, the, the student body was primarily Mexican-American, even in the 1800s. So, you know, just looking at the overall picture, it's very complicated. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, race and equality, um, at any given time, there were some Jesuits who were arguing for what was right. There were some Jesuits who were arguing for what was wrong. Uh, and even though it took time, right ultimately uh, tends to win the day in those arguments. And, and integration is is very much an ongoing project here. It's still something that the schools are working on today. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right, yeah. As you explain, you know, to understand the growth in Jesuit education is to understand the growth of American Catholicism. Right, so what were some of the biggest changes you saw to Jesuit higher education and thus the biggest changes to American Catholicism over this 200 plus history you know it's a little bit of a tough question i'll admit that but um you know i think it's an important one no and and you're right but in a in a big scope big picture type history like this this is exactly the kind of question you want to answer um so one thing that i think a lot of american catholics today don't remember is that in the very early days of our country from from the colonial era to the civil war catholicism was a mainly southern religion you know, Catholics were often French and Spanish settlers, and they settled in places like Louisiana, Florida, and Missouri. Uh, the English Catholics mainly settled in Maryland and Kentucky. So, you know, the early Jesuit colleges reflect this. You know, the very oldest Jesuit colleges are in places like Mobile, Alabama, and St. Louis, Missouri, and Grand Coteau, Louisiana. And, of course, Georgetown, which is basically in Maryland, is the oldest. But then immigration really starts to change the face of the American Catholic Church. So lots of Irish immigrants arrive in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, and and they start to settle in the big cities. So now you have new Jesuit schools popping up like Fordham in New York City or Boston College or St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Um, Then after the Civil War, industrialization starts to change things, and and Catholicism goes from this small-town southern church into a big city northern church, and you've got new immigrants from Italy and Poland and Germany and and other parts of Eastern Europe, and they're all settling mainly in the north. Um, So it's not surprising that the very first Jesuit college founded after the Civil War is Loyola in Chicago in 1870. And in the next 20 years, the Jesuits opened schools in Milwaukee and Detroit and Cleveland and Buffalo and what we now call the Rust Belt. And at the same time, they're downsizing their southern presence uh, because the south is becoming less and less important to the American Catholic Church. Um, So, for example, by the by the Civil War, the Jesuits had actually operated four different colleges in Kentucky. Uh, But by the 1870s, they totally abandoned Kentucky altogether and they refocused all their personnel in places like Chicago and New York. Um, So wherever Catholics are settling in big numbers, uh, what you'll find is that the Jesuits are not far behind. And it's also true in the West. Uh, you know, at first, the Jesuits were working in the West as missionaries to the Native Americans. But 
eventually they shift their their ministry to some of the the newly arrived homesteaders in Omaha and and Denver and and elsewhere. Um, So I've said this before, but if you were to choose one group of people who just kind of encapsulate by their actions and their growth, uh, all of the change in the, in the demographic growth in the United States from coast to coast and, and the demographic shifts in this country over the past 20 years, the Jesuits would be a pretty good choice because they just they reflect and they react to things that were happening in the church and in the United States uh, through all of those major time periods. Yeah, and I think we have time for two more questions. Um, but this this book, as as I think you've hinted on, uh, is open to everyone. It's not just for academics. It's not just for uh, college students or grad students. It's for everyone. Um, and so what do you want the readers to walk away with after reading your book? Well, you know, I, I wanted the book to be kind of a history of the U.S. higher ed system, as well as a history of the Jesuit colleges operating within it. So I just hope that readers understand how education has changed over the centuries. You know, in the 1700s, private tutors made house calls to wealthy people, and that's what education looked like. Um, by the 1800s, you have the Morrill Act and the rise of the research university and you know, philanthropists like Andrew Carnegie, and they're all pushing higher ed toward practical science and away from classical Latin and Greek, which was the Jesuit specialty. Um, And then in the 1900s, colleges really struggled to survive during the two world wars. Uh, And then they were overwhelmed by applicants when the GI Bill went into effect after the the Second World War. So, you know, what we consider a normal college experience today is just very, very different from what higher ed was in the past. Uh, You know, I also hope the Jesuits come away with or Jesuit colleges come away with an appreciation for just how interconnected the schools are. You know, they, they work together. They shared faculty. They shared, they shared presidents. They shared resources. Um, for example, the, the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts was not chartered as a college for almost 30 years after its founding because the state government in, in Massachusetts refused to recognize a Catholic school, partly doing due to um, you know, lingering anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant prejudice. Uh, and as a result, Georgetown stepped in and awarded diplomas to Holy Cross graduates. So for the first 30 years, if you graduated from Holy Cross, you technically got your degree from Georgetown. Um, and lastly, I, I just wanted the book to kind of reassure the, the current stakeholders in Jesuit higher ed. There are a lot of questions about the future of Jesuit colleges now. You know, What's it going to look like in the next generation? The number of priests is declining lay people are taking over, but, but none of the questions that we are facing now are new. Uh, I, I just hope that it makes, the book makes clear that there are many controversies and challenges in Jesuit higher ed over the years. The, the Jesuits have always had to adapt to changing market conditions, new technology, new student preferences. They've survived those things in the past. They, they will survive in the future. Well, my final question is, you know, what projects are you currently working on? You know, this is a little tough. The book just came out in October, but, you know, are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on Jesuit college and universities and that you're planning on to pursue, or are you looking in a new direction? Well, well, first of all, even at 400 pages, I don't think my book answers every question by any means. So what, what I hope is that it spurs new interest in the history of Catholic and Jesuit higher ed, because I just think that's a fascinating story. 
Um, and my hope is that you know, future scholars can, can use this as a starting point, almost as a baseline, and then dig deeper into the story. Um, so that the next time somebody wants to write a book about Jesuit higher ed, they, they won't have to start from scratch and won't have to dig through hundreds of different documents like I did. Um, I am working on a couple follow-ups to the book. I have a bibliographic article coming out in the spring for the journal Jesuit Higher Education uh, and describe some of the sources I used. And I, I'm also working on some research into other Jesuit schools that, as I mentioned earlier, maybe didn't quite meet the definition of a college, but still played a a role in U.S. history uh, as high schools or lower level schools. And you know, my main interest and in what I what I write about most is always about how Catholic colleges can live out their mission uh, and just keep their unique approach to education, you know, distinctive today and, and relevant to modern society. So I have a couple articles in the works on that and you know, definitely will continue that line of study. Well, that all sounds fascinating. And I can't wait to read what uh, your articles have to say in your future books. Um, thank you. Well, thank you, Michael, for being on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure to have to, to, to be here, and thanks so much for having me. Yeah, uh, this has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Books Network podcast. Mm-hmm.